Second Corinthians chapter three, if you want to follow along, we're starting verse one. Just kind of as we usually do, we go through books, just kind of expository preacher and go through each verse, take a look at uh, what it has to say to us. Uh, remember, we came off last week. Paul is spending a lot of time trying to defend himself. That's one of the reasons he wrote the letter. Uh, so that's kind of what we're going to come into here. So starting just for these first three verses, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? So he's having to defend himself. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So he uses the defense of his apostolic ministry to make a much deeper point. You're gonna, you see this all the times in the letters. You know, you want to get the context and figure out what's going on as best we can. But Paul's so good at that, and obviously the Holy Spirit's inspired this, to help us understand deep theological truths. And he says, he's not going to give you letters of recommendation. He says the, the, the evidence for that is the believers in Corinth. Because you remember, Paul went in here, and it was a mess. And then after 1 Corinthians, it was a bigger mess. Um, and he's still dealing with this congregation. And, you know, sometimes in life we think, you know, you start, you start a church like that, and everything's just going to be, you know, rose petals and peach blossoms, and it never, you never have any friends. It doesn't work that way, is it? And you think about it in your own life, I would assume most of the things that really have meaning took some effort. Um, and usually the things that don't take effort usually don't have the deepest of meaning, and that effort is ongoing. So that's kind of what he's going here. But he says, you are a letter from the Messiah placed in our care, which I think kind of, we, we know this verse in Matthew 6, um, but sometimes we, I, I think we, we n we're not sure what a treasure is. Uh, you know, when Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is where your heart will be also. So you think, where should our heart be? Well, it kind of should be here, shouldn't it? Um, where, what can we treasure? When you die, what, you know, what can you take with you? You know, the word treasure kind of gets us because we think treasure, and what do you think, you know? Arg, you know, like the fire thing, you know, finding the buried treasure. You know, it's gold doubloons and whatever else is in there. And so it's a, it's a word that kind of stops us. But uh, you think about, isn't it the people that also are disciples? And for Paul here, it's actually having these disciples. These disciples are uh, ones he made, you know, and, and I have had the privilege of doing that for some people, you know, where they didn't know Christ and now they do. And you're not always the only one, but you get to be a catalyst to that. And that, there's no better treasure than that. You know, and I remember telling the guy that helped me come to faith in college, it's like, you know, if it wasn't for you, I might not ever have believed. And he's like, well, you probably would have anyway, but thanks for letting me be part of that. And th that's, it's just the treasure. You think about that, you know, kind of back youth for Christ. I mean, that isn't that it. You're trying to make treasures, whether it's in, you know, Germany, Turkey, London, or Winterset, or off at Air Force Base, which isn't very far from here, which has a youth for Christ ministry. That's the idea. This is the treasures you get to take with you. Um, so we have to remember that. We have to remember that that's what we should invest our time as we can into helping people know Christ and developing those relationships 
that are of, from other disciples that are in our midst. You know, that's the way. And it, and it happens in different ways. Paul was a preacher, but there's other things in these churches, right? I have, you know, Kurt and I have something that's, that, that's in common. Both of us have watched Paul do work and dig holes, you know. I'm not sure why he doesn't ask me to help. Um, I think it was that time he was so talking about some sort of plum thing, and so I was looking in the truck for fruit, and I think that's the last time he asked me to help after that. So, um, you know, some incompetence can get you out of work if you work at it. I, I found that works in the kitchen, too, if you're... Uh, why don't you just get out of here? It's like, well, that was kind of what I was hoping anyway. Um, so um, some are good at others. But th it's a group, you know, again, just what, whatever we do, do it for the glory of God. And that's kind of what he's talking there. And he kind of ends up the second half with something I wanted to talk about a little bit because we, I don't know if we quite understand. what He, he uses an Old Testament phrase. And we, we kind of get the Old Testament wrong, I think, sometimes when we think about what, what God was really doing back there. He talks about it. You know, it's it's not written on on not in ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And that comes back to the Shema. I know that, that we had to learn this in uh, Hebrew. In the Shema, Israel, Elanai, Onhedu, I don't know, Akkad. Okay, everybody repeat. No, I'm not going to make you do that. But we had to learn that. It was the first thing we learned in Hebrew, but it's, you know, you shall, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength. And you shall take these words that I command you today, and they should be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them on a sign of your hand, and you shall there shall be frontlets between your eyes. Um, now, some people took this literally. Uh, I don't think you should because we'll look at a few other verses here. Um, this was supposed to be, the, think about it, what's he talking about? I want the words on your forehead, you know. I want them in your mind. I want them in what you do. Uh, I want them in what you feel. But uh, when we were over in Israel, that's been, boy, that's been 20 years ago now. Um, the, uh, we had some of the Orthodox Jews had this little box on their head. And, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, you're like, throw that guy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's just a little weird. But they call it, you know, th th these they have these things, and they, they, they're just taking this literally. And I guess that's okay. I mean, you know, we, we wear crosses, right? It's not that we think Jesus died on this one. Um, but, you know, so, but it, and I, if you talk, I got a chance to talk with the Orthodox Jews. I don't know if you know that, but they're kind of told not to talk to Christians. But if you keep trying hard enough, if you're annoying enough, they'll at least tell you to go away, and once in a while you get something in. And uh, one of my spiritual gifts is annoyance. So I was able to... Uh, use that and and I, I was just I, I asked you know what 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 you know it's thing on your head you know what's he says it's to remind me that you know that Torah is what I follow you know it wasn't about the thing you know he wasn't trying to make it and that's what the rest of the scriptures say in the Old Testament and then we'll look at one of the new let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you bind them around your neck write them on the tablet of your heart that that see he that's what Paul's taking here Jeremiah talking about the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with you and the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the new covenant we're talking about. This is the one we're in. We don't have, you know, a big temple with the mercy seat with the Ten Commandments in it. We, where's the law? Where's the Torah? Where's the teaching? Where's the commandment? It's in our hearts. It's a... It's here, too, but ultimately it has to be in our lives. 
And then the quintessential one, we got this one we went through John. I think I told you the Gospel of John, it seems to me, has Ezekiel sitting right beside him when he's writing this thing. And Ezekiel has the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. This is Yahweh talking to people in the new covenant. This is what it's going to look like. And you will be clean from all your uncleanness. We just read, we just sung that. Give us clean hearts. Uh, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I'll put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what we have. And Jesus nails this in John 3 using a summary of what we just read when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, I will sprinkle clean water on you and give you a new heart and a spirit. This is what he's talking about. If he's not born that way, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You've got to have this transformation. That which is born of flesh is flesh, right out of Ezekiel. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Sometimes when you study the New Testament, if you know the old, it makes it kind of more deep. Um, so that's where he starts with. And then he gets into confidence. Um, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be the ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So he, he's confident. For Paul, his confidence is being right with God in Christ. That's where our confidence should lie. And that's always a question you should ask yourself. Um, whether you're going through good times or bad times, whether you're using your gifts for positive things or you're struggling with relationships or jobs or all those types of things or illness, where are you placing your confidence? Who are you trying to please? How do you know you have right standing before God? What gives you the assurance? Do you, what protects you from evil? What gives you the ability to honor Yahweh in your actions? That's where are you placing your, it's always something to ask. I mean, maybe every morning you wake up, where am I going to place my confidence today? Because yes, God knows what's going to happen that day, but guess what? You don't. Um, and a lot of things can happen, good or bad, and are we placing our confidence in him? And the other thing he talks about is sufficiency. He's, he's really talking about that Jesus is sufficient. What God has given us is sufficient. For Paul, the message he brings and the mandate is from God. You don't need to add to it. You don't need to do anything. He doesn't need man's approval. He says this in Galatians, For I, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Um, this is out there, right? You know, you change the message so more people will come. Uh, you change the message so people don't feel bad. Um, I was going to say, I don't care if you feel bad. Well, I care. Uh, but if you feel bad for the right reasons, I think that's okay. Um, most people come to the faith at a, in a time when they're struggling. Um, it's not something that just kind of happens. Uh, so, you know, if you feel guilty, it may be because you are. Uh, if you feel unworthy, it's probably because you are. So I think but the thing we have to remember, what we teach here, and a lot of churches do this, is that what we have is sufficient. You know, God saw to it, we have what we need, we get plenty of, of, of evidence in, in, in the Gospels about Jesus going to make sure through the power of the Holy Spirit that we got what we need. We don't need to add to it. That's been a problem in American Christianity for years. 
adding new scriptures, adding new ideas, Jesus talking to everybody, telling them new things. What is insufficient in what we have? When you read through the Bible, is, do, you, can you, do you know how you're supposed to be saved? Do you know how you're supposed to live? Do you have confidence? Is there enough in there? Do we have to add to it? I think most of the problem is we don't read what we have and then we want to add to it, which is kind of silly. It's kind of like going out to buy more food before you've eaten what you already have. But we're saying it's, it's sufficient. None of this Jesus plus baloney that's out there. We don't need to add to it. We just need to know what it says and understand it and get to know him better through it. Um, so that's what he, this is sufficient. And, you know, he even says in, in verse 9 of Galatians chapter 1 that even if an angel from heaven comes and gives you a different gospel, let them be accursed. Paul was really sure he had what we needed. Uh, and I'm pretty sure we do too. And then he talks about the letter kills. What's he talking about there? Following the law cannot save because of the moral inability of fallen humans to obediently follow. Um, show of hands, how many people sin this week? Okay, we got, I was hoping everybody, but hey, you know, some of you are better than me. That's fine. <laughs> That's, but think about it, we do fall short. It's not the goal. The goal is to not sin. You know, you've got, um, you, you've got that. But the problem, what it, it, it's just a letter, right? James 2 says that if you screw up one of them, you're guilty of it all as far as in the eyes of God. But isn't it wonderful that that's not what saves us? One of the analogies of the law is a mirror. You know, I don't know. It, this is rhetorical. You can raise your hand if you want. But how many people looked in a mirror today? <laughs> we do that. What are we looking for? Is looking in the mirror, does that change you? Don't you have to do something after that? The mirror just shows you where you are. And that's what the law does. It shows you where you are. It's a measuring stick. And it'll do two things. It'll hopefully want you to be more obedient, but more importantly, it'll hope you run to the foot of the cross and say, thank you, Lord, for living a perfect life and transferring that to me by faith because, boy, by golly, every time I look in the mirror, there's something that needs to be fixed. Um, that's... The Spirit gives life. That's where he ends here. Because one's nature is changed when you repent and believe and follow Jesus. Back to John 3.3. 3. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's the same thing that Ezekiel was saying. Again, something has to change. And then we'll get this just a few more weeks, but I thought it was such a good verse in context. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and behold, the new has come. And that's really what you always look for in your life. Do I have a new direction? Is my confidence in Christ, am I going to go forward? So that should stop any legalistic Christianity, right? You know, the old ditty, I think that was from John Stott. We, we don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we're saved. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. So then he goes on in some interesting things. You can see Paul is a consummate Jew, a lot in the background here. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what will give 
what is given will give permanent glory. So he's kind of like, this is the Moses and Jesus difference, you know. And one thing I want you to notice, Paul is not, he's making comparisons. He's not saying that the Mosaic covenant was bad. He calls it glorious. It was good. It was, it was what was needed at the time, but it was never meant to be final. If you, uh, we partner with Jews for Jesus a little bit, at least individuals do, and, and these, these Messianic Jews who are now followers of Yeshua, as they call him, Jesus. Um, and that's the thing they try to teach people, that Mosaic covenant was never meant to be the final thing. But it wasn't bad. It was good. Uh, but ultimately... The final thing was the new covenant, the ministry of the Spirit in Christ, the glory that surpasses it. So, but we get this wrong. I, I've heard people say this. Well, the, the Mosaic covenant was a covenant of works, and the new covenant is a covenant of grace. That is just wrong. And I'll show you really quick. Um, and, you know, you can disagree, but I'll still think you're wrong. Uh, so, it, it was designed to, it wasn't designed to be a legalistic thing. And we went through Deuteronomy. I see some people go, that, how long did that take us? Yeah, you guys slowed me down a little bit, but um, it took a year and a half, I think. But, I mean, it's a lot of chapters. But we noticed that, you know, 13 times in Deuteronomy alone, we get the core of the true connection with Yahweh. And here's Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? It's always good to see these, right? Um, to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That kind of sounds like Jesus. Kind of sounds like the new covenant in some ways. Now, I'm not saying it's the same because they still have a system that we'll look at. But the word love your God in Deuteronomy is there over 40 times. That's the key. It's the key in all the covenants. It's the key to connecting to God in either of those. And how do I love God? How, do, how can I have a connection with him? And it comes down to one word. Now, you always want to look for this in people. And I still want to get my shirt that says I'm humble, um, which is kind of an oxymoron. But it would still be fun to have, right? Uh, but humility is what you're looking for. In Leviticus 26, if, if they, they messed up royally, you can read about it if you want, the old folks in the old covenant. So I always wondered that. They have a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud in front of them. I've never seen one of those. I've seen the pillar that goes like this. We're in Iowa. But, uh, and then they're fickle. I'm like, it seems like supernatural stuff would help, but maybe not. Um, and they, they did some horrible things. But if he said if their uncircumcised heart, the heart that is against him, is humbled and make amends for their iniquity, I will remember the covenant. The promise will come back. You get that in, in James. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and then he will exalt you. So humility is where we have to start because we humbly realize we fall short of a holy God and then we look for a solution. Um, so we need to recognize our unworthiness before the holy God. Guilt. You, you have to recognize that you're guilty. You know, that's the only way to do it. There's no other way in the Gospels to do it. That's how you become a believer. You have to realize you, there's a problem. You need a solution. The solution is to repent and to receive and experience his grace, which will give you his love which is really cool, right? And then live a life of loving gratitude. You've got to get those right, guilt, grace, gratitude. But it all starts with humility. You know, you get people that think you can do it other ways. There is no other way. It has to start that way. And remember, building the law of the Mosaic Covenant was these sacrifices. Can you imagine that living back then? 
Um, I mean, think about that. If you have to close your eyes, go ahead. I usually do when I have, but if I do that, I might fall off the stage. So, but think about how that would be. So here you might come and you might hear a song or, uh, you know, somewhat adequate sermon and want to repent or confess your sins. What would you have to do back then? You'd have to go home and get your lamb or your pigeon or goat or caribou or whatever you want to get, and you bring it back and you kill it. Actually, you put your hands on it and the priest kills it. Um, I don't think I would have went to seminary back then. Um, you know, I'm like that dummy that said, you know, I don't want to have to kill all the animals. You can get all the meat right at high V, right? Um, I mean, you got to get there somehow, right? Uh, but it's a different, what, what was it for? Why are you putting your hands on it? It's, it's a symbolic giving over and then there's no shedding, there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Well, why? Well, we know why, right? Because it's all pointing to the cross. They probably didn't quite understand it. But you have plenty of verses that they, d they didn't mean anything. You know, you get Amos, Amos 5, I detest your sacrifice. Why? Because your heart's far from me. It's like anything we do in a church. You can do all kinds of different symbolism, and, th and those are great. We, we, we do communion once a month. We, all these things, even baptism, those are wonderful. But if the heart's not really there, it doesn't really make any difference. You just get wet and have a little bit of juice and way too little bread. It, 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 it's important. It's powerful. It's, it's, we're obedient to it. But it's the heart that God wants. So those who realize their guilt and surrender to God will use God's given system to be in connection with Yahweh. That's what it was all about, connecting with God and following his law to show their love and devotion afterwards. It was never a works righteousness idea. It's very new covenant. It just we, Jesus hasn't shown up yet. So the new covenant, the sacrifices are no longer needed. Thank God, and I'm very helpful. I'm very thankful. I mean, it would be a lot stinkier in here. It would be like what the other building we were at. Once in a while, you know. If it wasn't a train, it was some dead animal, you know. Usually both. Um, but this pointed to the Messiah, right? You get this in Hebrews. It, you know, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never, and if you look at that verb in Greek, never means it just can't permanently take away sin. It's, it's temporary. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand and he's done. He said it on the cross, right? It is finished. And then he gave up his life there. So that's, this is, you know, give thanks for this. This is what is always, always pointing to. So the ministry of the Spirit adds a vital thing. This is one of the biggest differences between Old Covenant and New Covenant. The Holy Spirit came on some people. You see Joshua, you see obviously Moses, David, Saul for 15 minutes. You've got some that get it. But look at this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And we will talk in future sermons on what that might look like in your life. So, let's finish up here. I know we're talking about all this food. You guys are getting hungry. So, Since we have such hope... We are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he uses a, a metaphor. I don't know if you remember this. If you, if you don't remember from the Bible, you remember the movie where Moses comes out and he's got that glowing thing going on. I don't know how they did that. And, you know, somebody in here, know, what year was that film made? 1950-something? 55-ish? Um, you know, I don't know how they, they did really good without any computers. But uh, they couldn't look on his face. because So he's using that metaphor for what's happening with his people. He hits his harder in Romans. A lot of Jews would not believe back then. Some did. It's a problem now. And he, he says it, it's only through Christ that it's taken away. So he uses this metaphor of Moses having to put a veil, and he uses that veil as a barrier for people believing. They cannot see the glory of who God is, and, and, and they're not accepting the new covenant through Christ. And Jesus kind of uses a different metaphor, but it's the same thing. You know, let them alone. He's talking about the leadership there. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Um, so verse 16 is a good one to remember. There's, I, I was told you that. I, I think I've got 27 different, like, life verses in 2 Corinthians, and this is one of them. It, it's very good. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Uh, what is what is that? What does it mean to turn to the Lord? How does that veil get removed? We've already been talking about it. What are we talking about a veil? Have you ever thought about that? You know, you got somebody that comes to a a, a worship service or a preaching series or whatever, and, and say both of them very similar people, but neither one know the Lord. One of them is it, something changes and they want to follow him. The other one doesn't. Why? Well, there might be a lot of reasons why, but Paul tells us there's something there that they just can't see clearly. The Pharisees knew the Bible very well, but they didn't see Jesus. And he thought they should. But what is it when one turns to the Lord? I mean, a lot of this is humility. Um, and you can argue to the cows come home, Calvinism, Arminianism, Molinism, whatever ism you want. This is how it happens. How it happens in the background, we can talk about that, you know, in heaven if we want. That's fine. We can talk about it now if you want, but it's not an essential. And you get this in Mark, first words from Jesus' mouth. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what turning means. Repent. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ. Be washed clean. Uh, give us clean hands, as we sung. So that's a key verse. This is the only way you do it. There's no other way to do it. You can try. You know, you can try to crawl in other ways, but it's not going to work. This is kind of easy, really. All you have to do is realize you're guilty. Turn toward the Lord and change your whole life. It's pretty simple. It's what you were created for, so it might be a good thing to do. And this again points to acknowledging your guilt, experiencing God's grace through the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that does that. You can read John 3. And then, you know, you get a good word, especially for our church. Uh, now you've probably heard these two verses because they've been in songs that we've, we've sung. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. It's a great verse, isn't it? Freedom. Word grace E3. It's not really what it means 
necessarily, but it's, it's cool. You know, people ask me, what do you do out there? I said, well, we just have all kinds of fun. Um, and then they're like, well, maybe I should go. I said, well, maybe you should. It's the, you know, it doesn't cost anything. You know, it's, you know, we're relatively nice people. Um, but what does it mean, freedom? You know, we think about coming to God as a surrender, and it is, but surrender so you get freedom. You no longer have the bondage of sin. That's free. You no longer have to figure out what's my life about. You know that. Honor Christ and his people. Um, freedom. We should think about that. If you're in Christ, you have freedom. You can do whatever you want. Isn't that cool? But the key is to do what God created you to do. The, the, the key, and it takes everybody to get that switch, when you come to worship because you want to freely, not because you think you have to. And yes, today, you know, it's a nice day out, so you do get double points. I mean, we keep giving those points out. They don't mean anything. Um, but, you know, put a couple more points down. Um, it's not about that, is it? Um, you know, that psalm that says, you know, uh, if, I, if, if God gives me the desires of my heart, it's because my heart is there desiring what he wants. That's the key, you know. And what if you don't have that? Well, I would pray that you'd get it. I think that's a prayer God would want you to pray. Lord, I don't necessarily have the passion for what you say I should have. Please give me that passion. Help me want to follow you as much as you want me to follow you. But it's free. He's not going to force you. Um, there's a word in the Bible that gets translated possession um, for people. You know, what's the context of possession? When you think of something, what's the word right before it? Blank possession. Demon. Evil forces, they want to possess you. What's the, what's, we got fire is one of them, but what's the, the animal metaphor for the Holy Spirit? A dove. Why a dove? Why not a vulture? Or an eagle? Or one of those osprey that go down and get those fish out of the water. That's cool. Why a dove? A dove kind of winds, kind of blows where it wants. It's, you know, you just, it kind of comes in. And it doesn't really force its way. It's kind of a neat metaphor. That's the way the Holy Spirit is. He wants to be in you. He won't possess you. That's not what we're, we're image bearers. We're not supposed to be possessed. We're supposed to be influenced. Uh, you know, I've heard people say, and I've probably said it before, um, it's kind of uh, unsmart. Um, but if you think about it, we've heard, well, that was all of God and not of me. None of me. Well, he's done that before. Remember Balaam's donkey uh, was probably all of God and none of the donkey. Um, but I don't think that's the way we should say it. Yes, without God, we could do nothing. But he kind of partners with us. Yes, he's the senior partner. I realize that. But we're, it, it's not him just taking over. If that's true, then he can use anything, right? It's, he partners with us. What a privilege. <laughs> you know, he actually asked, the, you know, Jesus brought 12 guys with him to try to, I mean, he didn't just, grab a bunch of robots, you know? So think about that. I wouldn't say that because I don't think you really mean it. I know it's humble, but just get the shirt, you know? We should get those printed up, you know, with our little logo. We're all humble. <laughs> this is good stuff. This is marketing. We can probably fund some more stuff if we <laughs> You guys can use that if you want. Youth for Christ, I'm humble. Um, but what are we free from? Well, we're free from sin and death, Romans 6. I mean, great stuff. But we're free for walking with Christ 
in the Spirit, having eternal life, living a life of gratitude. If you are a believer, does it make a difference when you wake up in the morning and think no matter what happens today, nobody's going to take away my eternal life? Nobody's going to take away my connection with God. That should make a difference when you wake up, and that should make you feel free. And then finally, verse 18, it's so poetic. Um, you've probably heard this, but now it's in context. Why does he use the term unveiled face? Because we've used that as a metaphor. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, which is another, it's a very good verse to tell people that the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. I don't know if you noticed that. He is. True followers of Yahweh in Christ through the Spirit experience God's glory in some degree now. The veil's gone. We can see the truth of Christ. But the design is to continually be transformed by the Spirit in this life. Well, how do you do that? Well, you all know this, right? I've only said it a billion times. Worship. Study His Word. Pray. And serve other people in the church. That's other believers, and then you can do more than that. But if you do those things, transformation will come. And if you don't want to do those things, I pray, God, help me want to do those things. You're free to do what you want. God will still love you. But isn't it, wouldn't it be nice to finish the day and step back and say, you know, I think God would maybe be proud of those few things I did. And then confess the mess-ups. Um, but what a, you know, he's our father now, right? He's not a taskmaster judge, and we don't have to fear him because perfect love drives out all fear, but we certainly should respect him. So we're saved by grace, grace alone, but we have to remember we should live by his grace too because he always is there for us through the power of the Spirit. So you see Paul gets into a lot of good things here. You know, the Lord Jesus and the Spirit are both Yahweh, as is the Father. It's very Trinitarian, but... They work in concert for our benefit. Uh, but what's their, what are they trying to do? Um, this is a night, it's a little pastorism, but I, I hear people say it, you know, God's not done with me yet. Um, yeah, maybe that's the way we should look at it. And where can we serve and how can we be better? You can do it, you don't have to do it in the church all the time. A lot of you have jobs that change people's lives because you're doing it for Christ. Remember that, he's going to continually change us. And that's probably going to go on for eternity. Um, which is kind of a privilege, I guess. So let's pray. Father, as we look into this text, so many great things to get out of it that we are free from you, that uh, Jesus fulfills all the old covenant. But just pray for each one here that everybody's at different spots, I know, and uh, some may be going through very tough times. But help them remember that if they have you, they have the Spirit, and they're able to uh, overcome anything by your power. Thank you for the privilege of being able to be part of your kingdom, the privilege of having a connection with you through your son by the power of your spirit, and always for the privilege of calling you father.